Asimov's just giving us another thought experiment. He's the means to the end of trying to figure out what is better. Is it galaxia where everything is ultimately part of a single organism? Is it ruled by the second foundation where those who are wise or at least claim to be wise are pulling the strings? Is it ruled by the first foundation where those who are spirited and movers and shakers are those in charge? And if Asimov did not come to a conclusion by the end of Foundation and Earth, that's fine with me. Welcome back to another guest episode of Selden Crisis. But today's guest has the honor of being the first returning guest to the podcast. He was also the very first guest way back in episode six of season one. Once again, I'm happy to bring you Nathaniel Goldberg, a philosophy professor who is such a huge fan of this series, he's made it a central feature of his teaching schedule, offering a special topics course on philosophy and science fiction in which his students read Foundation Trilogy and compare it with Plato's classic work, The Republic. The last time we spoke, we wanted to avoid spoilers for the second and third book in the series that we hadn't covered yet. I always hope to get Nathaniel back on the podcast after completing the trilogy, and here he is. Welcome back, Nathaniel, to Selden Crisis. Thank you, Joel. It is an honor being back. Um, thank you for having me back. And as I said on my, my first time on the podcast, there's nothing quite like the Foundation Trilogy. And I, I now want to add, there's nothing quite like your podcast. So it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, been an amazing experience to put it on. Uh, I met so many amazing people like you, and it's just been so much fun. So last time we had you on our discussion was in the traditional interview format where I asked you a series of questions and let you share your considerable expertise. Today, I'd like to do something a little different and just have an open discussion of several themes Asimov introduces in the first three books. Um, the first one seems pretty obvious to me, and maybe the one with the most relevance, relevance to our times. And that's of the lone figure with foreknowledge of imminent catastrophe for a civilization facing off against the ignorant and apathetic masses and leadership, and seemingly insistence on maintaining the status quo. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Hari Seldon's prediction of the collapse of the galactic empire and his duel with the chief administrator, Ling Chen, that sets up the first story in the epic, The Psychohistorians. I assume it's occurred to you, as it has to me, that there are parallels in our time to this basic conflict? Oh, absolutely. Though, in some ways, um, this seems a little bit at tension with the whole theme. <laughs> and here, Joel, I'm already throwing a curveball from the beginning. A little bit in tension with the theme that the um, individual all by themselves can really be a, a harbinger or, or give warning to what's to come. So, so maybe your point is um, that today we're not exactly in the situation that Southern was in because today there are lots and lots of voices who are talking about uh, the impending climate catastrophe, but perhaps they're not being heeded enough. Um, so we've got sort of like the inverse of the, the Selden case where there was one voice that was able to move the galaxy. And here, for by hook or crook, you know, hundreds, thousands of voices aren't able to move enough of us. So, um, so I don't know. What, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, the first 
you know, I, I always think about Greta Thunberg mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, how uh, she became such a um, powerful voice uh, just by, you know, the fact that she was a, so young and uh, apparently insignificant action of just taking every Friday off to hold up a sign. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and eventually that did catch attention uh, of a lot of people and she became kind of a figurehead of the movement in some ways. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, she obviously is not a Hari Seldon, you know, that's capable of creating, she's not a scientist herself, so she's not capable of creating a plan to get us out of this. And no single scientist would be able to. Uh, there are, I would say the, the nearest uh, comparison to Seldon is like the, the mm-hmm. international climate uh, protection something. Anyway, you right, know what I mean. Right, the group that every 10 years writes a scarier report than they did the t- 10 years Right, prior. right. And they're, they're doing modeling, which is kind of similar mm-hmm. to psychohistory in a way, you know, using mm-hmm. mathematics to um, create like the, these, uh, figure out how things would work and, and where, th- where things are going. Yeah, but um, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be all doom and gloom about it because things are changing here slowly. And it, Maybe a lesson from the trilogy is that things really started accelerating for the foundation once the empire started falling. The, the four barbarian kingdoms, Anacreon with the, at the lead, get annexed when they, to the foundation when they secede from the empire and when things already start to, um, to catastrophize in a way. So not to be too, too gloomy about it, maybe the silver lining of the you know, increasing ambient temperature you know, increasing average rainfall in certain areas and lack of rainfall in others is that as our uh, climate starts seceding from the norm, maybe more and more people will pay attention, just as Asimov described happened once the empire started. Yeah, hopefully we don't have to, like, become as resource poor and as isolated from the rest of the galaxy as Terminus uh, was at the beginning. That's true, and hopefully hopefully we won't need to, uh, to power our... Uh, spaceships with fossil fuels the way that Asimov pictured they were doing yeah. when they ran out of nuclear power. Right, right. And speaking of fossil fuels, it just occurs to me that fossil the fossil fuel industry in a way is kind of the analog with the empire here. Yes. And uh, that, that the collapse of the empire could be likened to uh, the economic collapse of, of fossil fuels as, as other, uh, as renewables get cheaper and become the, the more effective uh, way of, of uh, providing energy. Yes. So, and yes anything to, to make uh, Vladimir Putin sad um, sounds good to me. But anyway, I'm sure his name will come up in this uh, conversation again. Uh, in fact, um, this just leads me to another thought about this idea of you know, action versus apathy, you know, taking action against the catastrophe versus not doing anything. Um, I think you mentioned something about the actionist party against uh, Hobra Mallow and how they, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, he solved the problem kind of by ignoring their intention to do things quickly and, and you know, to, to uh, take, take action. And he just, no, the best thing is to not take action in this case. Right. And given the um, increased uh, 
you know, timeline or the, the shortened timeline rather for predictions about whether when the climate will be irreparably changed. I don't know whether that transfers neatly either uh, to us. I don't, well, we're not being guided by a Selden plan for one thing. So no. we do have to do something. You know, Selden wasn't guided by a plan. He created the plan. Uh, I, I'm bracketing the sequels right now and the prequels where other things come into play. But no, we have to take responsibility. Um, we have to be our own Seldens in a way. So right. inspiration right. from the trilogy, um, but maybe not a direct recipe from it. Yeah, I think it's it can be appealing to try and map things directly, and that's never really going to be the case. Um, the, there are similarities, but there's always uh, unique aspects of reality that get in the way of trying to fit it into a neat uh, you know, plan or neat analog. So um, another thing I was just thinking of, speaking of the Ukraine war, um, the actionists kind of remind me of some of the radicals on both ends of the political spectrum um, in that they're, uh, you know, short, the short-sightedness of like, oh my God, we can't be supporting Ukraine because Vladimir Putin's going to unleash nuclear war. Um, and the, the, you know, the longer view that appeasing a tyrant only makes him stronger. Um, mm -hmm. And, but Interestingly, in the story, it was kind of the reverse in that the actionists thought of the uh, Anacreons as an, an imminent threat that needed to be dealt with immediately. And the mm -hmm. uh, and Hardin was the one who was taking the, the longer view of inaction in that case. Yeah. In, in fact, um, Joel, if I could try another curveball related to Putin, though, I'm still um, I'm fascinated by how much Asimov plays by and doesn't quite play by his rules. So the rule for psychohistory is you can't predict the behavior of individuals. And yet there's a lot of that going on even before the mule appears. But, but to put it in the context of Putin, and then I'll give you examples from Asimov, we might want to say that we can't predict what Putin will do. Will he or won't he, you know, heaven forbid, use a tactical nuclear weapon? Will he or won't he try to seize more territory? But you know, you can make an argument that psychohistory could have predicted some of this, or at least something like psychohistory, because you know, I lived through, and I, you know, I'm dating myself, and imagine, you know, you you too remember have memories of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and this um, moment of of relief and uh, of optimism that this conflict between what was the Soviet Union or the Russian sphere and what was the, the so-called West was coming to an end. Um, but then pretty quickly, the two sides you know, still went their separate ways, even if there was more communication between them. And the two sides have deeply separate histories. So I don't know whether we should be so shocked um, that the two sides are still in tension with each other you know, even without a Putin, maybe there would have been someone like him. And that's an argument for, you know, for um, dealing with the devil, you know, because who knows what his, his generals would be doing without him or what his successors would be doing. Um, but then again, it's an argument for, well, they probably see a threat from the West and the, the so-called West would probably see a threat from basically a petrostate right? A gigantic landmass whose chief wealth is from oil. We're going back to um, the climate crisis now. Mm -hmm. And 
maybe this is just the sort of thing that could have been projected by something like psychohistory. And maybe whoever's the president of the U.S. or the president of the Soviet Union or today Russia, maybe that's less important than the historical factors that went into where each state finds itself in the, in the year 2022. Yeah, there's um, psychohistory, I think, is going to be interwoven with a lot of these topics. And uh, one of them that just, you know, leaps out at me is, uh, you know, the idea of uh, the great man theory of history uh, versus the idea of psychohistory where it really doesn't matter what individuals do. But in the great man theory, you know, it's like the the classic example is if a time traveler went back and killed Hitler as an infant, would the Holocaust have happened? And the great man theory says no, but, you know, you that the that great man in this case was uh, great doesn't mean good. Uh, it just means very powerful um, that he would have, you know, he was essential for that. But the alternative is that uh, the the other hypothesis is that it would it would have happened anyway under some other leader because the societal uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, movement was in that direction, and you know one one person doesn't make that much difference. So, in, if that's the case with Russia, then deposing Putin wouldn't be the a, a great solution, you know, because the the real problem is the societal forces in in Russia. You know, and the, right. they right. they believe in this, and the the masses believe in this idea that Russia is destined to you mm-hmm. know be larger and larger and more powerful. And uh, so, how do you solve that problem? How do you yeah change and, the thinking of mm-hmm. half the planet almost, or yeah, a, a large I, group? And I don't think Asimov though. Um, Though he he plays a good game, as I started saying a few minutes ago, I don't think he's necessarily consistent on this either. Obviously, when it comes to the the mule, uh, so-called black swan example, an exception to the rule, we understand he's a mutant, so the Selden plan can't account for that. But Asimov himself writes in characters into the early stories, which seem to be governed entirely by psychohistory. There's no second foundation, as far as we could tell, pulling the strings. And in fact, we're even told after the fact that the second foundation didn't need to pull the strings in the early years because the trajectory is pretty much on course with the Selden mm-hmm. plan. But yet we have people like Salvor Hardin, who seems like a great man if there ever was one. And we have people like Mallow, right? Hober Mallow, who seems like a great man if there ever was one, even if their greatness consists in doing nothing. That, that was your point about the actionist party and Maybe sometimes we do have to do nothing, but they were, they were great enough to know how to do nothing. And the more that I, I teach the Foundation Trilogy, the more that I wonder how, you know, how consistent was Asimov uh, in, in some spots. Um, and then I'll be quiet and, and let you defend the good doctor if you'd like. But in some spots, Asimov gives us a reason. He realizes this. So he realizes that, uh, that it is that the foundation has to be established on terminus. And therefore, I think he says at one point that, uh, is it Lian Chen, Li Chen, who's the, the mm-hmm. person who's going to decide where, uh, who has the ear of the emperor, ear of the emperor. But that person was the most studied ever in history by psychologists, because even though psychohistory is 
uh, meant for billions or trillions or quadrillions of people, we still need to get him to, to um, position the original chess pieces so that the foundation is on terminus. So there, Asimov is saying, yes, I realize psychohistory can't really do this trick, but we're trying really, really hard um, in other ways to predict what the emperor and what his you know, counselor and government will do. It in was as cases, if he was, he yeah. believed they had to set up the uh, initial conditions uh, rigorously and that required the working with an individual. But right. you're right, I, I think he is really inconsistent uh, about this and and it's a running theme throughout the whole thing, this uh, contradiction of individuals don't matter but powerful individuals are popping up all over the place and mm -hmm. apparently making really important decisions that affect things. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of this, though, is um, Hober Mallow, and it's near the end of The Merchant Princes when uh, he's he, he has this little aside at the very end where he talks as if he's almost a uh, almost knows he's a fictional character yes. being written by someone. Uh, in this yes. case, you know, in the book, in the in the story, he realizes that it's Selden who's written him, written mm -hmm. or written the plan, so that he doesn't really matter or whatever. He he's not a great man, even though he he's accomplished great things. He just happens to be in the right place to to execute what Selden had predicted, and he basically he sounds kind of uh, you know annoyed by this. But at the same time, he says, okay, well, I'm just going to make the most of it, you mm -hmm. know, and do play my part. Well, well, there too, now I'm going to defend Asimov for a minute. He does seem to have realized that there are these exceptions that his story needs. And he handles um, the Mallow case in a way by basically telling us that Hobart Mallow is um, Salvor Hardin's son. At least I think that's basically telling us that. And Salvor Hardin, we are told, was the first and last psychologist in the first foundation. So mm -hmm. maybe, maybe Selden somehow part of the plan, maybe the second foundation, maybe somehow they arranged to have a psychologist be there uh, during the first Selden crisis because they knew that Salvor Hardin would be smart enough to know that he was to do nothing. Right. I, mean. I remember he was, um, he had those uh, moments of introspection uh, where they mm -hmm. described him wondering about that. So it was not like he was explicitly trained or directed in, more like he had to, maybe he was subliminally trained mm -hmm. and that appeared to him in his introspection as the solution but it, this is another run, running thing that kind of annoys me sometimes about this whole story is that you have all these these uh, figures that you admire for their free thinking, and then you find out later that they were, um, you know, kind of programmed, and mm -hmm. it wasn't really them. We'll get into that later for sure. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to turn things just a little bit uh, to sure. uh, the the role of deception in uh which is huge we know right a couple of really important uh big lies being told uh along the way uh the first one being uh harry selden lying to the foundation themselves about what their purpose was 
and how uh, Selden revealed that at the end of uh, the Encyclopedists, right? And then later, uh, the big lie of, uh, yeah, the, wait, what was the second one you mentioned? Um, oh, that the second foundation was destroyed. Yes, that, yes, uh, yes. Right, that um, right. Ar- Ar- Arcades' um, father was um, deceived, as was she, yeah. but that he In, in a way, the these kind of bookend the whole trilogy, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. the first one's very early and the, the last one's kind mm-hmm. of the final, the big mystery uh, just before is the, the real solution is revealed. Yeah, that there were 50, 50 martyrs. That, yeah, uh, I want to get into that too. That's a that's another yeah, uh, occur- that's reoccurring theme is is this idea of like uh, uh, the ends justify the means, and and you know, yeah, mm-hmm. it's okay to to kill half the planet of Tazenda, you know, because that's part of the plan, and you know, it's it's okay to. You know, to kill, kill uh, poor Ebling Miss, you know, because he, he was about to reveal the, you know. Right. And that, yeah. And that 50 members, I think it was 50, right? That 50 members of the Second Foundation willingly um, went to their death, knowing that that was for the, the greater good plan. And yeah, the, as, the idea of martyrdom, mm-hmm. of the, um, that, uh, the altruistic sacrifice. Right. And it, as, as I was just reminded listening to your previous episode, it's the, the acolyte asks the, the first speaker, couldn't we have managed with fewer than 50 martyrs? And the first speaker says, well, we, we could have perhaps, but 50 already seemed on the low side. And I guess the statistical analysis, the calculation should suggested we probably needed more, but we dare not yeah. uh, have any fewer than 50. Yeah, that first speaker's just uh, so... Uh such a heart you know, mm-hmm. we'll save, save 25 people mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, back to oh one of the okay let's see oh back to the the big lie and the noble lie that we're talking mm-hmm. about um, this is obviously something that seems to have relevance in our modern time uh, in mm-hmm. that uh we know about the big lie in United States politics of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Trump claiming he, he actually won the election that was so obviously false. Uh, and, you know, selling that lie, uh, finding a way to convince people of that. Uh, and it, it's obviously quite different with, than what Selden did with the foundation. Uh, but, it's it's still a big deception. And there's another one I, I was thinking about, and it involves that guy, Vladimir Putin, again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I've been taking this course uh, online, uh, just you know, kind of auditing uh, uh, Timothy Snyder's uh, Yale course called uh, The Making of Modern Ukraine. I, I'm really fascinated with this whole subject because I know a lot of Ukrainians uh, through my wife, um, who's emigrated from Russia and has some Ukrainian background herself. And uh, this, uh, the, the, what, uh, one of the things that Timothy Snyder says is that this whole idea of to justify the war that Putin makes is a big lie. It's mm-hmm. based on this, uh, he's 
a misreading of history, an intentional misreading of history, in which he claims that the it all started with Kievan Rus when mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Volodymyr uh, was baptized into Christianity, and that that formed the the essence of Russia, and that Moscow later developed as part of that, but that it's all linked and they're all one, you know, destiny that, you know, this is all, and he's just restoring this and bringing them back together. And, uh, you know, Snyder points out, Snyder is a historian, and he he points out that this couldn't be more wrong, that, you know, Kievan Rus was was more Viking than Russian. uh, And the idea of calling the the Muscovite state Russia came much later, was completely disconnected from what was happening in Kievan Rus. And mm-hmm. that's that's just nonsense. So yeah, but he's I, selling it, mm-hmm. you know, he's selling mm-hmm. that big lie. But uh, Yeah, as I uh, as I recall from my history courses a long, long time ago, um, Muscovy was the most powerful state in that region. Um, so therefore the Mongol empire, which controlled the region, uh, put the Prince of Moscow, I think in charge of levying taxes. So, uh, the Mongols were able to control that part of the world by having secret police and by turning allies against each other. And here's a moment where we do see the, the pull of history and psycho history. If you're part of a, a country who, whose very founding was based on a secret police and the pitting of allies against one another, as Muscovy was when it expanded to include the other areas, the other city-states and regions in its area. It's really little surprise that they inherited the idea of having a secret police, right? whether mm-hmm. we call it GB or its successor state, and whether we pit allies uh, against one another or neighbors against one another, whether we call it Russia or Ukraine or some other area. Um, we're we're all descendants of our history and the geopolitical situation we find ourselves in, and yeah, yeah to your point, Putin maybe uh, he's just particularly good at crafting lies, um, but there are lies everywhere, and some sometimes I wonder how much uh, how much the actual history matters, um, but maybe that's a, a different kind of philosophical question. <laughs> right, right. Um, Another major theme I noticed uh, throughout the books was uh, using cleverness against uh, a kind of authoritarian strongmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Salvor Hardin against the Anacreon state with, you know, weenus of Anacreon and, you know, kind of just being one step ahead of him all along and being the smart guy that, you know, kind of took him down by cleverness, you know, and making the right moves. Uh, then mm-hmm. it was uh, mm-hmm. Lamar Pagnets, you know, faced with trying to get his his uh, his pal out of detention on Ascone, and he 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 came up with this uh, you know BS device uh, to to uh, transmutate uh, transmute right. uh, you right. know, into gold uh, iron mm-hmm. into gold, uh, and and you know he basically won that that story by the equivalent of something like, uh, 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 you know, what's the, uh, this kind of spam where you, you, um, 
you, you try to embarrass the the victim and you, you um yeah right. malware um, yeah yeah sure. and that's that's what it struck me as just like that i, I didn't like lemon Pagnets at all from at the end of that story he just seemed like you know, mm-hmm. kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a racketeer and scumbag but he was yeah. the clever guy you know and he figured out that how to how to win the day by uh, he, using his cleverness. yeah he 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 was um I do think that there that something fundamentally shifts in the trilogy with the introduction of the mule. So before then, the stories, even though there's some tension, great great person, great historical person versus just the currents of history or our social view of historical change. Nevertheless, psychohistory plays a larger role, and the way to succeed is to let trends happen. And if you're clever at it, right, then more power to you because as Hardin says, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Then suddenly when the mule appears um, and then the second foundation enters, it seems like there's a lot more action. It's, it's a lot more than just sitting back or being clever about it because the mule is sending fleets to conquer worlds. Even if they surrender, he's still doing that. And the second foundation is they're not just being smart. And this is kind of interesting. They're, they're using their intellect in a different way. They're not using their intellect just to solve puzzles. They're using their intellect literally to coerce other people through some sort of psychic waves. So mm-hmm. Asimov has us turning psychological power into physical power, which is bizarre. Because you might want to say that the, the intellect is the hero of the whole trilogy, because in the beginning, Selden's the great intellect who sets up the foundation, discovers psychohistory, sets up the foundation, both foundations. Uh, Salvar Hardin and Hopper Mallow and the others, the, the, the traders whom you mentioned, they use their intellect either to do nothing or to do, um, to play, play the small game, knowing that the large game is going to work itself out. But then with the mule, suddenly the intellect becomes a physical kind of power because you can use your mind you know, literally to cause people to save you if you happen to be um, magnifico right yeah or, or to 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 give up uh, like or to give up with, yeah with what she did with you know foundation uh with right. terminus right and with right. the uh, trader world haven right. right so is is asimov really um so i guess today's my day of being a little bit critical of asimov is he <laughs> is he really valuing the intellect or is he ultimately coming around to the view that the only way that intellectuals can win is by turning their intellectual power into physical power. That's what happens. Well, let me try to answer that in a way that's like kinder to Asimov. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that his genius as a storyteller uh, was dependent on him not needing to have everything neatly tied up in a bow um, he he was able to conceive of stories that he didn't fully understand as he was writing mm-hmm. them. You know, mm-hmm. that there were lots of loose ends, and his genius was reassembling those loose ends in new and unexpected ways. You know, as mm-hmm. as the story went forward uh, later, I think in, in I Asimov he says uh, that he learned this very important, uh, the only important thing he he, he knew about writing was uh, understand how it ends and don't mm-hmm. worry about how you get there. But clearly that wasn't the case with Foundation when he started writing it. 
because he right. didn't know about the mule yet. You know, right. Campbell came to him and told him he has to come up with some way of subverting this pattern mm -hmm. of the foundation always winning. Right? Mm -hmm. And it's also obvious when you read the sequels uh, that he, he has a has different ideas in mind than it, when he was writing the trilogy of how it should all end. Right. Uh, yes. So I think it's a seat of the pants thing where he's constantly writing himself into blind alleys and then somehow figuring a way out of them. Uh, yeah. That makes it, him really yes. interesting. No, I agree. I agree completely. And I can tell um, a bit of a historical story about maybe, maybe how that happened. So Asimov, uh, as, as you've mentioned, and as I think your listeners know, he was a historian um, by hobby he was a fan of Edward Gibbon's monumental, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And it was mm -hmm. that that modeled the decline and fall of the Galactic Empire. And I, I am not a student of Gibbon, but I've done you know, my Wikipedia reading up on him. And I've talked to people who actually are scholars of Gibbon. And apparently, as Asimov says, as he puts in Selden's words during his court trial in um, the very beginning of the first book, the empire has become too centralized and there's a, a lessening of incentive and a lessening of intelligence and a lessening of spontaneity and a lessening of um, progress because of that. And I gather one, one diagnosis that Gibbon gives for why, well, that is some of what Gibbon says, why Rome fell, but one diagnosis for why we need not worry about that happening in, Gibbon, in Gibbon's own age of early modern Europe is that early modern Europe was not centralized. There were all these different principalities and republics and kingdoms. And if you read the first few stories before the mule appears, that does seem to be the template for the foundation. It's a loosely, it's a loose confederacy held together somewhat by religion, um, somewhat by trade, but there's no centralization in the, well, in the geographic sense, because Terminus is nowhere near the center of the galaxy. And there's no super strong political centralization either. It's, it feels a bit like I don't know, 18th century Europe, where mm -hmm. there was maybe a Holy Roman Empire, maybe, maybe it's a little bit more centralized than that. There were people who had more control and less control, but it, it wasn't anywhere near like the Roman Empire. So I think that's why the first few stories have that feel and then when the mule comes around, suddenly the mule does unify everything. And then the second foundation has to undo this. And then Asimov mm -hmm. starts wondering, will the first foundationers be willing to have a centralized you know, government? Right. On the one hand, because they're not going to be the ones in charge. But also on the other hand, because by history, they're a bunch of you know, merchants and traders. And, and yes, and religious uh, proselytizers too but they're not really empire builders. So, mm -hmm. so the model becomes different, uh, I think, in, in the later books. And something that you and I have been talking about for a while now is how um, I've been reading, and you've told your listeners, I've been reading Plato and Plato's Republic as an influence um, on Asimov that really only comes out in the later couple stories. But as you're saying, um, Asimov left enough loose threads that we can sort of retrospectively see going back to the very beginning, that we, there was a kind of model that we were going to have um, this group of people, these second foundationers who, as, as you put it in your 
previous episode, were going to act something like philosopher kings. You know, they're never identified early on, but it does seem to fit. And there, there are these metaphors and other models you've been talking about, the, the big lie. Um, Plato in the Republic talks about the noble lie, which is something that the, the Republic tells its people to try to make mm -hmm. its society work. So I don't want to overplay the influence of one, auth one author on Asimov, because you're absolutely right. Um, there are threads everywhere. Asimov was... Uh, was a Renaissance man. As he pointed out uh, a bunch of times, he was deeply influenced by theater. And he wrote on Shakespeare and he wrote on the Bible and he, mm -hmm. he read Gibbon not once but twice. Um, I also think later on, um, Plato resurfaces and never by name, um, but I'm pretty sure it's there. Yeah, actually, I, I read your report. Uh, you just wrote on Socrates as Selden, or Selden as Socrates. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hadn't seen all those parallels with the Republic, uh, that are so striking when you point them out. Uh, it's, and I think you're probably right that he didn't intend to make it a, you know, base it on the Republic in any way, but it's just, uh, they're kind of universal themes that you have fit in the same way. Uh, in, a lot there, of, in a lot of ways. There there are, once you see them, it's hard not to see them. And I was taking all this to be, you know, we can't help but, uh, you know, when we, when we say that there's a method to his madness, we don't realize that we're quoting Hamlet, but we are, right? And when we mm -hmm. talk about, um, I'm trying to think of other expressions from Shakespeare. Um, so there there's things from great literature that just permeate the language because, People once upon a time all read them and then they started quoting them and mimicking them. And Plato's one of those people, and there's some things that have just entered storytelling. So initially I thought, well, that's all it is. There's some similarities, but you know what? There's similarities between Plato, between the Republic and Moby Dick. And I mean lots of stories have similarities. Yeah. But then when I started looking, especially the language of the second foundation, so I know I'm jumping the gun a bit, but just to point one concrete thing in particular. The central image or a central image of the Republic is this allegory of the cave, that the way to gain knowledge is to transcend the physical world and live in a, a world enlightened literally by the sun. It's to step outside from ignorance and be enlightened. In the, in the allegory, it is to be walking out and have the sun illuminate the world around you. When the second, when the first speaker speaks to his acolyte in um, the final story, um, the final half of the third volume of the trilogy, he uses almost exactly that same language. The prime radiant is a radiant like the sun. It is literally illuminating the Selden plan. The speaker says to the acolyte, don't worry, you won't cast a shadow. Shadows are things that are seen inside the cave, but not in the light of the full midday sun. The first speaker tells the acolyte, we are doing this because we have to love Selden's plan. That's, that's the reason that's motivating us. And that's the reason why we're willing to sacrifice 50 people of our own and half the population of Tizenda, because we think the plan is good. And the story mm -hmm. in Plato's Republic is the reason that their version of the second guard, the second foundationers, I almost said it, he calls them the guardians. The reason that they are in charge of the Republic through telling their own noble lies is because they have to love the good because they have to be willing to sacrifice their lives and their well-beings for something greater. 
So once you start seeing the language mirrors, I, it's just impossible for me to think that this was not explicitly on Asimov's mind, at least when he was writing the final story. Yeah, yeah. If it wasn't, if he hadn't read The Republic, it's pretty miraculous that he rewrote The Republic so closely in, in science fiction, you know, uh, with this, this whole idea or that all those aspects of The Republic. Yeah, in fact, if, if I've got a, a minute, I can lay out more structurally where I see them similar, or maybe it's fairer for me to talk about Plato and The Republic themselves and why I like teaching the two works together. Mm -hmm. uh, especially now that Please. there are no worries about spoilers, because we know, yeah. we know how the trilogy ends. So Plato was this famous Greek philosopher, I did some research. I should know this having taught him, but I never actually remember. So he was alive roughly the fourth to the, well, in the fourth to the fifth century before the Common Era. He's thought to have written the Republic, which is his most famous work, uh, in the year 375 BCE, before the Common Era. And the topic of the Republic is, uh, it's meant to answer the question, what is justice? And sort of superficially speaking, that does not come up in the Foundation Trilogy, right? It's sort of remarkable. It's a, it's a work of, you know, it's a space opera and it's a work of on a grand political scale. But there the concern is how do we shorten the interregnum and make sure that the Second Empire is established as quickly as possible so few people suffer? Yeah, it's but, mostly power mm -hmm. politics, right? And, it's mostly power politics. Yeah. But... But don't we want to ask whether, you know, and I, so that I don't filibuster, Joel, maybe I'll ask you, like, what, what do you think? And then I'll get, then I'll go back to filibustering if you let me. But, but don't you think it's, you know, it's a legitimate question to ask at the end of the trilogy, was the second foundation justified? Were they interested in justice or in their own control? And how about Yeah, I think the it's mule? a it's a great mm -hmm. question, uh, and uh, all you have to do is think about Tazenda. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> half the uh, half the planet being ignorant of their fate, presumably, presumably, mm -hmm. um, and being sacrificed for the good of the galaxy. You know, and yeah, and is that just? Mm -hmm. uh, how you know, th should the second foundation be given a pass for that? Uh, also, and, and another, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. How about the mule himself? So, or even uh, his his successor who tries to carry on, you know, the mule's military uh, imperium, imperium. The mule says, and his successor says, um, right? Stetton says, we are doing in uh, you know, a generation what the Selden plan was meant to do over a, a thousand years. So why are we not better? Isn't it more just to bring about it, the Second Empire more quickly? Why go through the Selden plan if you could just shorten the inter interregnum to 200 years instead of 1,000 years? Yeah, it's a great question. And that brings me to something I want to call out is uh, some performances from my voice actors. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I'll get to Amanda in a moment because she was brilliant and I want to thank her for everything. But her husband, Zach Kreitler, uh, performed Lord Stetton. And I was just amazed by how well he did that role because uh, I, it wasn't just, I, I had perceived that character differently 
mm-hmm. when I read it. I had perceived him as a stereotypical, well, Putin-like character in a way of being just a, uh, a you know, power-mad, uh, you know, not very intelligent uh, character. And it, it, when Zach read those lines that I had, I had picked out uh, for him to read, he sounded like a smart guy. He sounded mm-hmm. like a, and a justified guy in his, in mm-hmm. his worldview that, you know, it made sense what he was saying, you know, uh, we can right. match them. You know, it's, right. you know, it's, it, you know, I, I felt like joining his cause, you know, at the end of that, the, those, right. those lines, uh, so, uh, just a very different thing. So I'm really, really glad, uh, that, he was able to put that much oomph into that character because it's good. No, I, exactly I am too. I, I thought, I thought he did a great job. Yes. At the, at the end of reading the Republic, um, those who are cynical, which I think everybody who reads everything should be, should have a, a healthy dose of um, cynicism sometimes because it helps us be critical when we read, but we can ask the question, all right, if, if the guardians or these philosopher Kings are supposed to be in charge of the Republic, is that really any different from having a tyrant be in charge? And right, here, and, the exact, uh, it's the exact parallel, right? Is it any different to have Stettin be in charge than it is to have these, these mind manipulators who will brainwash people and use, use infants, right, experiment on a newborn uh, to alter her brain? That's pretty horrific, let alone having half of Tizenda and 50 of their own die. Now, who's the tyrant here? And who's the, who's the unjust one? Uh, and I think that's what Dr. Daryl was trying to mm-hmm. get across. Uh, you know, or Asimov through that character and his perspective, because Doctor Daryl didn't care about Lord Stetton. He he didn't mm-hmm. see him as a, a you know yeah we'll, we can we can fight that kind of a, a devil, but uh, somebody who controls our minds, yeah that's mm-hmm. a whole other thing, and that's what really terrified him. Yes, and that's new to the second couple, you know, uh, to the mule in the stories that come after. That, as you said, um, you know, there were loose threads and there's a new loose thread that appears in the story. And Mm -hmm. that, I do think, um, just parallels so well with the Republic. So to answer the question, what is justice? Plato starts a thought experiment. He says, well, let's try to imagine what a just city would look like. And he says, well, a just city or a just Republic would have three classes of people. Most people would be needed to produce things. They'd farm, they'd mine, they'd get natural resources. Maybe in today's society, we'd say those are people who sit behind desks, you know, people in the information processing world, uh, people who do things. Um, and lots of people, most people have to do that. And in the galaxy, you know, at least during the time of the Republic, uh, sorry, during the time of the Empire, most people are not part of either foundation. And as the Empire um, recedes, they still go about farming, they still go about trade, and the first foundation then encroaches on that, but still most people are, are this the source of natural resources for terminus, things like that. Plato mm-hmm. says the second group are going to be the auxiliaries, basically the, the spirited ones. They're going to be the military, the police force, the people who are loyal beyond any shadow of a doubt to the Republic. They're the ones with the oomph, the fighting spirit that are going to defend it and expand its interests. And that seems to be what the first foundation is doing. 
They are loyal to the Selden plan. They're going to expand the sphere of the foundation, ultimately to become an empire. And they're going to use and trade with the majority of people in the galaxy who are not from Terminus. And even if the foundation expands outward to create a new empire, most people are not going to be um, mayors of Terminus City. Most people are not going to be uh, in the intellectual hub of the foundation. They'll still be the merchants and the producers. Anyway, the third class is, we've already said, I've said they're the, the guardians, and this is like the second foundationers. They are distinctly a minority. There are very few people who are going to be guardians, just as the number of second foundationers, there's some on different planets, um, but many of them are on, I guess it's okay for me to say this now, on Trantor, where all stars end. And they're going to be there um, because they're intellectuals. Something else mm-hmm. striking about this in Plato is the guardians are to live in poverty because they would be tempted otherwise. Look at who they are. They are the most philosophically trained in Plato's Republic. They're the most intelligent. They're the ones who are running the show. So mm-hmm. for them to have material wealth around them would be too tempting for them to take over. And that is exactly the way that the second foundationers are described. They're farmers, right? Preem Palver. Right, um, right. Right. It's just remarkable. He's interested in trading potatoes. Of course, he's ruling the galaxy, but he himself does not have material wealth. And just think for a moment, the second foundationers could crown themselves king if they wanted to. They could do what the mule did if they wanted to, but they don't because they love the plan or in Plato's language because the guardians love the good. Now it gets, mm-hmm. gets a little bit even, even closer, and I don't know how well or poorly I am at drawing the analogy, but on, on Plato's story, let's just do Plato for a minute. The way that we understand for, for a society to be just, look at its three parts. You need some part that rules. Let's have the guardians be in charge because they're the highly educated wise ones. You need some part that helps the guardians rule because intellectuals by themselves will just be sitting in a room. Let's have that be the soldiers, the auxiliary class, the ones that are spirited, the ones that want to spread the influence. And then let's have the majority of people just go about their lives, producing, farming, working in offices. Justice is, Plato says, when each part does the part that's best suited for it. So when the educated class, when the guardians are in charge, the spirited class helps out, and the third producing class produces things. Now, that transfers completely to Asimov's foundation. What I think makes a case that the galaxy for Asimov is just, I think, is that those in charge are the best educated. That's the second foundationers. But what do intellectuals do? They sit in a room talking. What they really need is some auxiliaries, some spirited group of people who can actually do things, spread the word, catalyze change. And that's the first foundation. So the Mm -hmm. first foundation is helping them with the plan, just as the auxiliaries help the guardians govern. And then most of the galaxy is just going on with their business, producing, consuming, doing what they need to do. So one more thing, the, the piece de resistance, the cherry on the cake, is that the person who creates or the, the person who's in charge of the guardian class, the shortest way to get the ideal state is to crown someone as philosopher king, someone who also lives in poverty, someone who does not use material wealth to, to their advantage. 
but someone who starts the process and in, in a way it's the, uh, the first speaker um, of the guardian class. And I've already tipped my hat because, or showed my hand because in Asimov's story, it seems like Selden plays that role. He starts the process moving. He is pretty implicitly understood to be a member or a proto-member of the Second Foundation. He's the one who's aware of Selden's plan because it's his plan. And he's the one who orchestrates things just as the Second Foundation would. So he is a philosopher king. The Second Foundation are the guardians who are pulling the strings. The First Foundation is the auxiliary or military class who's spreading the good word. And the bulk of the galaxy, like the bulk of the Republic, are farming and producing and manufacturing and trading. And, and as long as each part does its part, you have a just society. I'm yep. done with my filibuster. Uh, that's cool. Um, but that leads me to talk about something that might not be right up your alley, which is the sequels. Because I know you focus on the trilogy in your course. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wanted to talk for a moment about how Asimov extended the story 30 years later when he came sure. back to it uh, and how his, uh, his mindset appeared to have changed about what his goals were for the, for, for how things should turn out, you know, because at the end of the trilogy, it's kind of like resolved that the second foundation is, is, is good. That, that, you know, we need them. Um, and what's ultimately good is just a good functioning society where, you know, everybody does their part and right. it's, uh, and the second foundation is necessary to keep that on track. Mm -hmm. Right. So 30 years later, he decided to continue the story with a novel called Foundation's Edge. And he seemed to find that this, this idea of a, an endless cycle of creation of an ideal state and its subsequent de de decay and collapse uh, didn't appeal to him as much. Maybe he didn't really believe in the, in the, the you know, the durability of what was created that, you know, that that wouldn't work out in the long run. Eventually it's going to fall apart. And then you've got to mm -hmm. go back to an interregnum of, you know, suffering and everything. And you know, hopefully there's a Selden around to, keep the interregnum to only a thousand years and you get another one, right? A third foundation mm -hmm. or a fourth foundation or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he didn't seem really, you know, satisfied with that. And a, a few years before he wrote that sequel, James Lovelock came out with this Gaia hypothesis and Lynn Margulis mm -hmm. was his um, companion on that, uh, co-publisher of that, I believe. Uh, about the earth as a sentient, harmonious entity. And mm -hmm. Asimov seemed to become entranced with that vision, and he extended it to the entire galaxy with a cosmic entity known as Galaxia. And at the end of the first novel, um, spurred by uh, a representative of a planet actually called Gaia, um, mm -hmm. You know the the main character Golan Treves, and here I'm going to mm -hmm. do a spoiler. So if you really want to be that, it don't want to be spoiled when I do Foundation's Edge. Then you know, turn off the sound for a couple of minutes here, uh, because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Golan Treves makes the case, makes the choice to uh, for Galaxia, and 
for for kind of enigmatic reasons, Golan Treviz is kind of the chosen one who gets to make this choice. And from that point on, the the fate of the universe or the fate of the galaxy is whatever he determines it's going to be. And he decides it's going to be Galaxia. So obviously, Asimov kind of liked this idea of a, mm-hmm. a galaxy that's all interconnected and everything is harmonious and and it just and instead of a top-down kind of hierarchy mm-hmm. and um you know a, a republic you know kind of idea it's it's a um it's just you know a, a living being that's all one right a very hippie kind mm-hmm. of idea um that he just he loved uh, and then you get to the next sequel of Foundation and Earth, and he seems to be having second thoughts because mm-hmm. that it, this character Bliss from Gaia and uh, is along for the ride, and you know part of the one of the core principles in Foundation and Earth. And a lot of the book seems to be them just bickering back and forth about which one of them is mm-hmm. right. And uh, Treviz seems to really regret that he chose Galaxia and isn't so sure it was the right choice and bliss keeps telling him, no, you did the right thing. Uh, and my theory is that Asimov wasn't really sure what, what the best thing was. And he was, he had kind of an internal dilemma. Did I, did I write the right story? Did I come up with the right ending yet? Or, you know, what is the right ending? And he still didn't know. And, one of the things that I love about Asimov is that he didn't feel like he needed to know to write a story. You know, he didn't have to have all the, all the ends tied up neatly. And in this case, there was a big gaping kind of mess at the heart of the story because he couldn't figure out which, what he wanted to do with it. And he was kind of, it seemed like he was through this dialogue, he was trying to straighten it out in his own mind and, you know, along with the readers and he, I, unfortunately, if he had lived another 20 years, he might have come up with a pretty solid thesis on, on this. But he, unfortunately, did not live that much longer. And we never got to see his ultimate resolution of this. So if I, one was forthcoming. So I'm, it wasn't a spoiler for me. So I've, I've read the whole Empire Robot Foundation series, all 19 or 20-something books, and I remember enjoying the philosophical back and forth that Asimov has with himself through his characters in Foundation and Earth. Um, I don't think that he is actually terribly different from Plato on this either. So though I don't talk about this in my class, I can go out on a limb here and say that you might remember, Joel, in fact, I'm sure you do, that the mule is explained as being a renegade guy in someone who grew up on this planet, which had mm-hmm. a single consciousness. And the mule for me still, still makes me wonder, would the mule have been any less just than the second foundation were the mule to govern the galaxy? And you're right. Asimov was concerned about the, won't there just be another decline and fall, even with the second foundation in charge? Um, Here's my plug for, for Plato. Plato himself recognized that there was always going to be decline and fall because human beings are imperfect. And he describes in the Republic a cycle of declining and falling. And after the, the ideal state, his ideal state is established, it eventually will turn into an oligarchy and then it will turn into a, 
another state he calls a democracy, and then it will turn into a democracy, which is not a good version for him or for Asimov, if you think about it. And then it'll turn into a tyranny. And the the most worrisome thing about a, a rogue guy in, and the most worrisome thing about the mule is that these are people who could have been Seldon's. Plato is explicit about this. People who could have been philosophers who are wise and spirited and have the, the wherewithal to produce and desire things, but are themselves improperly governed. So Plato introduces a character in the Republic called Thrasymachus, who is the spitting image of the mule. He is as smart as a philosopher king. He's just, he's not governed by wisdom. He's not governed by spirit. He's governed by his desires, which is what the bulk of the galaxy is. And the mule is like that. And your point about, well, we have Gaia or Gaia, we have a, a world planet that is um, a single civilization and Galaxia would be a galaxy like that. We can ask the same questions. Uh, who's to say that Gaia will be any more just than the mule would have been had he controlled the foundation? Or who's to say that mm -hmm. Galaxia will be any more just? It still seems to come down to how do you balance the needs of life and how do you, um, you know, look out for the, I'm going to quote Star Wars, Star Trek here. How do you look out for the goods of the many and the good of the many and the good of the few or the good of the one? How do you answer these fundamental questions, whether it's a planet or a foundation or a, or a galaxy? Well, I think one of the charms to me of the Gaia and Galaxia idea was that the many are the one. Mm -hmm. It's a merging of them together. And there's no need for hierarchy anymore because everyone is everyone. Everyone is, is part of this. Right, the, the right. And I, and I remember the analogies in Foundation and Earth are to cells in a body. So wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of being you know, an individual cell, we were all cells within a single human body? And that might be right, I suppose, if we're really individual human cells. But does that scale up? Can individual human beings really become nothing more than cells? In it does seem like body? a big leap to go from one planet to the whole galaxy in an instant. Um, yeah, it seems like you would you you would need to try this on a, a greater and greater regional scale, you know, for it to have any chance of but, working. But if if I can come full circle to something that that you asked me about on my first. Um, time on your podcast, I was interested in the, the role of Foundation Trilogy as a thought experiment. So here's the galactic empire that's falling. What do we do? And we could look at Roman history. We could look at the decline of the Spanish empire or the, the United States empire, if we want to speak that way. Or we could put it out in space and see whether there are philosophical lessons to learn from that. And it could be that by giving Gol and Treves this, um, I don't know, this, this in, inexplicable choice or this inexplicable justification, he was the one who, who intuitively would know how to choose correctly. Asimov's just giving us another thought experiment. He's the means to the end of trying to figure out what is better. Is it Galaxia where everything is ultimately part of a single organism? Is it ruled by the second foundation where those who are wise or at least claim to be wise are pulling the strings? Is it ruled by the first foundation where those who are spirited and sh movers and shakers are those in charge? And if Asimov did not come to a conclusion by the end of foundation and earth, 
that's fine with me because at the very end of the Republic, Plato ends by introducing a myth, a myth about what happens when you die. And it has nothing to do with an ideal state. It has nothing to do really with much that came before in the Republic. But I think it's his way of just showing the, the thought experiment continues. We're always going mm -hmm. to have these questions and there are always going to be different ways to think about them. And that's the beauty of what Asimov did. The loose threads are good threads if they get us thinking. And yeah, I think, a, doctor. I think you and I, I can appreciate that and a, a lot of people, but there's also a, a lot of people who can't, who, who want things to be resolved neatly. And I think that's where a lot of the dissatisfaction with that final story comes, comes from people reading that and saying, what? He didn't ever tell us which is right. Yeah. Um, yeah and huh. so tough well, on them, I guess. <laughs> tough, on, tough on them. So, so can I, so here's, I'm going to let you and your listeners into a, a little secret. Hopefully this doesn't make me seem too, too pessimistic, but it's, it's something I tell my students. Um, we don't know what the ultimate answers are to most things. Maybe we don't know to anything really. Just, we, we, it's useful to say we know, and certainly it's extremely useful in, in the hard sciences, right? There are assumptions we make that our current theories work, and we're going to believe that until we get new, better theories. And we do this in the humanities, in the social sciences, even in math. People develop you know, non-Euclidean geometry is relatively new in the history of math. People were convinced Euclid had the final word until people were convinced he didn't. It's just in philosophy and I think in science fiction and maybe especially in Asimov, we're self-consciously aware that we really ultimately don't know. So I understand, I get this from my students and, and for me too. It would be good to be able to pin something down and had Asimov decided for sure, galaxy is the way to go or the second foundation is the way to go. That would, that would go a long way to maybe making it for a more satisfying story. But it wouldn't match reality because reality is we're always searching. And until we, until we stop being human, I don't think we're going to stop questioning. And Asimov just does that, does that with a, a wit and wisdom that few of us can ever approach. Right. This kind of leads me to a final thought before I get into wrapping things up. Uh, the value of science fiction. Uh, this is, you know, as you said, it's great for, for thought experiments like this. Uh, and uh, I just read a paper by a, uh, a guy who uh, was previously on this podcast named Paul Levinson uh, about this idea of uh, how you can introduce philosophical concepts through science fiction that are really engaging because it's a story. It's a fun story. And people don't even realize that they're learning philosophy or experimenting with philosophy, playing with philosophical concepts, but they're just engaged in the story. And, and this happens all the time in science fiction, and we've seen it in Star Trek, for sure. Mm -hmm. The Orville this, uh, mm -hmm. is one of my favorites now because mine, they really get into some, some excellent uh, philosophical concepts and societal dilemmas and things like that. But, uh, you know, a lot of people don't, understand that about science fiction who don't read it and think it's just an escape or something. And I think it can be a way to approach really fundamental things. So I'll put, I'll post a link to Paul's, um, 
Yeah, um, please do thesis on that because I found it really interesting reading. He talks about Dune too and how um, mm-hmm. Foundation and Dune have different ways of dealing with a, a very similar topic. Uh, in the foundation takes it on a macro level of the, 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 uh, you know, a large, the whole galaxy and their fate. And uh, well, Dune does too, but Dune also makes mm-hmm. it more of a, a personal level, uh, in the person of Paul Vodib and how his development, you know, changes through the story. So. Yes, that's absolutely that's absolutely right, and it, it doesn't stop just with Herbert and Asimov. Um, you and I have talked about. I'm trying to uh, read lots of contemporary science fiction, and I was blown away by the three body problem. Ah, by I keep being oh, told I must read that. It's on my in my queue, and I will get to it. Yeah, uh, right by uh, Lu Sichin. I'm probably mispronouncing it. It's a Chinese name. That's it's right. Chinese word. And it's, it's as philosophical. In fact, it's inspired by Asimov in some ways. Um, Asimov is implied, or at least the Foundation Trilogy exists in that universe because there's a character who reads the Foundation Trilogy. It's mentioned just on, on, once on one page. But there's so many exciting um, contemporary authors who are following in Asimov's footsteps, sometimes explicitly so. So science fiction can be about spaceships shooting at each other, and it could be, you know, only about that. And there's some science fiction that only does that. But the really good stuff makes you think. And Asimov's part of the really good stuff because he makes you think. Yep. That's a good place to end, I think. And uh, so many ideas we could have gone into uh, that I had to skip over for time. Uh, so maybe there will be a, another opportunity to have you on. We can continue well, that's very, discussing that's, this. That's very kind. I'll get off my philosophical soapbox next time. Um, but we talk before that, that I, I, mm-hmm. I want you to close with t- letting our listeners know a little bit more about you and where they can find you online if you want to be found and uh, what other projects you're working on. Sure. So I don't have much of an online presence other than my university website. And you can Google my name and philosophy and it'll pull it up. I published a couple of years ago a book called Superhero Thought Experiments that talks about um, superhero comics, actually, and a little bit of current Marvel DC movies, but mostly the comics and how they get us thinking about personal identity or the nature of time or the question of justice. And finally, Joel, to your question, what am I working on now? I've teamed up with a wonderful co-author, actually co-authored the superhero book with him. And the two of us are trying to write a, just a general, more popular book on how do we understand the role of reboots, and retcons, and sequels in movies? And can we apply that understanding to reboots and retcons and sequels in, say, things like Supreme Court cases, like when you overturn Roe v. Wade, is that a kind of retcon? Or how about in the history of science, when you overturn scientific theories? So are there these tools from pop culture that uh, help you us could kind understand? of say uh, Putin's story of the history of Russia is a retcon in a way, right? It absolutely is a retcon. Yep, you absolutely could say that. Retcons yep, can so be that's, dangerous. So that that's what I'm that's what I'm up to. Cool. Sounds very good. Um, I'll look forward to checking those out. 
So I'm so glad we had you back. Wishing you well with your future endeavors. Well, thank you, Julie. You've been gracious as always. And thank you to your listeners too. So great spending some time chatting with Nathaniel again, one of the many wonderful people I've befriended along the way in making this podcast. We just hit a cool milestone in having a single episode reach 1,000 downloads for the first time. That would be episode number one, The Psychohistorians. I never imagined that I'd find that many people who would enjoy hearing me share my perspective on this story. We're approaching 14,000 downloads in total since April of last year, spread across 71 countries. It looks like there are a lot of Asimov fans out there. In addition to the dual appearances by Nathaniel Goldberg, I've featured conversations with astrophysicist Stephen Webb, historian TCA Akintya, sci-fi writers Tobias Cabral, Erasmo Acosta, and Paul Levinson, literary analysts Priya D. and Danielle Pajek, and original fanfic by Sarita1046. We've covered a lot of ground besides Foundation by Asimov, including the works of Plato, Fermi's Paradox, lots of Star Trek and the Orville, Dune, the history of the British Empire, and some analysis of the Apple TV version of Foundation. Along the way, I've shared my personal reflections on notable figures I've encountered on my life's journey thus far, including Kim Stanley Robinson, Elon Musk, and Mars Society President Robert Zubrin. I've also had the pleasure of discussing another Asimov classic in The End of Eternity, one of the best time travel stories ever told, ruminated upon the great man theory of history and discussed the value of imperfection and the necessity to challenge fate. I even went so far off topic as to summarize my rock opera, Planet and Sky, and provide some retrospective on the story of its creation. It's been a hell of a ride so far, and I plan to keep this going a lot further, and I hope to continue to keep your interest as we delve further into the great story of Foundation. Once more, I welcome you to visit the podcast website at seldoncrisis.net, where you can find dedicated pages for each episode, including links to all of the major podcast platforms, full transcripts, some of them in the new active transcript format. I hope to convert all of the transcripts to this format over time. It allows you to play the episode audio while the words are highlighted in text, includes timestamps, and you can search for something you might have heard and want to remember. I also plan to include more biodata on all my wonderful collaborators eventually. There's also an excellent reviews page where you can see some of the wonderful feedback I've received from grateful listeners and contribute your own review if you would be so generously inclined. Last but not least, if you'd like to help me to create these episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. A link is always present in the show notes. Thanks to everyone who helps this podcast by downloading, listening, interacting, and spreading the word. And I'll join you again soon here on Selden Crisis.